The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. If you ask anybody if they've seen the film Lost Boys, guarantee they will immediately bring up the scene where a shirtless, oiled sax man sings I Still Believe on the outdoor stage at the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. Not a critical plot point, but an iconic scene. So much that the saxophonist in question, Tim Capello, has become a beloved cult figure, or to some folks in the ska scene, a meme. But long before Tim appeared in any vampire film, he was a respected musician that played with Tina Turner, Peter Gabriel, Carly Simon, and Billy Crystal. On today's episode, we aim to strip back Tim Capello's meme and cult film icon status and talk about who he really is as a musician. I can't believe we got to talk to Tim Capello. I watched Lost Boys so many times as a kid. And if you had told me that I would get a chance to talk to the saxophone guy from from Lost Boys as a kid, my head would have exploded. Yeah, and, and the craziest thing is that that's not even remotely the most interesting thing about him. Not at all. Can believe what a crazy, awesome career this guy has had. Yeah, I mean, not only has he played with, you know, all these amazing figures from the 70s and 80s and 90s, like Tina Turner and Peter Gabriel and Carly Simon, but his experience within those bands have all been weird. Yeah, he's an absolute original weirdo. Thanks so much for doing this. We've been looking forward to this interview. Oh, great. Great. Like I said, I'm not much of a scholar on Ska. We just want a scholar on Tim Capello. (laughs) (laughs) As long as you're the expert on that, we're good. I have to say, you know, I'm a Tommy McCook fan. And, and you know, I really like the Scatolites and I've heard a lot of their stuff and and played it. You know, Don Drummond and all those guys. Um, So the horn sections, especially, and the Studio One stuff, I've, I've played a lot in, in, uh, in a uh, Jamaican music band that I played. Yeah, are you talking about Island Head? Island Head, yeah. On the album, it's really just jazz versions of uh, Marley songs. But when we play live, I sing a lot and do reggae versions of, uh, you know, Motown or pop songs and stuff like that. And also we play a lot of Studio One stuff, you know, just to get the crowd, uh, just to sort of start off things and give them that vibe. Because obviously, ska with the horns, that's like a huge thing, right? The scatolites, that's, a, that's an enormous thing. So, so I love doing that. And, and I'm really familiar with Tommy McCook's playing and Don Drummond's playing. Oh, yeah. Don Drummond's a legend. I feel like he should be hailed as um, a horn great, like the way we talk about American jazz horn players. Absolutely. He should be right up there with, J.J. Johnson and all the really great trombone players. Absolutely. You called your Island Head album Punky Reggae Party? Yes. I'm curious why you chose that as your title. Well, I play in the band, but I'm not the leader of the band. 
So um, the guy who really put the whole thing together, who's, you know, uh, the brainchild of it is, is a guy, a drummer that I work with a lot named Bill Messinetti. And he worked with, um, and, and Don Harris, uh, who's a guy who just has played with just everybody in the world. He's, he's a, um, we were really lucky to get him, but he was a friend of ours. So me and Don are the horn section. And he did all the arrangements. Um, so they were really, by the time I got stuff, it was just sheet music, you know, to look over and then just go into the studio. But it was a great thing because it made me feel a lot, you know, obviously saxophone players, guitar players, when they're doing a solo, they're in like three weeks later and they're by themselves with headphones on. This, everybody was in the same room, just like the Studio One sessions. So if somebody made a mistake, we just lived with it. It's interesting, like Punky Reggae Party is like a kind of an obscure Bob Marley song, but it's um, it's a song he wrote when he went to England in the late 70s and he saw how much the punk rockers loved reggae. That's what that song comes from. Such an odd, interesting choice. Yes, you can hear it in the words. And, and I think um, that's what Bill was really drawn to, that it was like a different... It was a whole different type of lyric for, for Marley, right? And it's great. I, you got to love it. And Bill really feels, he felt like, and it's true, we're really like a live band that gets everybody into it and gets everybody, you know, it, you know excited. And, and we really feel like we want to be um, an entertaining band. Um, so that's why we started throwing vocals in there and started doing tunes uh, in the live show that, you know, everybody in the, in the States would know. Um, because sometimes we felt like, you know, obviously if you're playing a jazz version of I Shot the Sheriff or something like that, that's really, really well known. Um, everybody's gonna get into that and know it. But some of these more obscure tunes I really had to hand it to Bill because he he just went for the tunes that he liked the most. He didn't always, always go for the ones that were just the most famous Marley tunes, you know. You know, we didn't do jam and I don't think. And Yeah, well, there's a lot of good stuff to choose from because he's got such a, a big catalog. Oh, man, so deep. I mean, you know, obviously one of everybody's favorite Scott tunes is simmer down. Oh yeah. What what was he 16 or something? Yeah, I think something. He was really young. Yeah, living in the back of the Studio 1 studios like on a cot. I mean, to me that just is one of the most grooving tracks and the vocals and the harmonies and stuff like that. I well, I might get myself in trouble here if we're talking about Marley, but my favorite Marley is like Soul Rebel. Oh yeah. African Herbsman. Yeah, that's uh, me too, actually. That's my favorite era of him. Oh, no kidding. So yeah. I'm not getting myself in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I guess because it's so, you know, when somebody becomes like the biggest artist in the world, you know, it's just like, at this point, can you really like listen to like 
don't stop believing and go, boy, that guy could sing. You know, it's just so overplayed <laughs> that you just want to get away as quick as you can, even <laughs> though he sings his butt off, you know, and it's a great track and all that stuff. So, you know, the Marley that's just super, super, super well-known. I And also I have to say that my two favorite eras in Jamaican music are ska and especially rock steady. Mm, yeah. When you get to the late 60s and early 70s, the, the recording becomes still lo-fi, but better enough, I think, that it's like so a lot of those early ska songs, even though they're so amazing, the recordings are so lo-fi, it kind of maybe hampers a little bit of how good they are. Yeah. I mean, it's a little difficult to listen to Oh Carolina you know, the original version of Oh Carolina, which is where a lot of people say Scott started. It's just so amazingly lo-fi that it's like listening to an old Caruso record. You know what I mean? And and trying to uh, trying to appreciate it when it's like. <laughs> <laughs> and I also like, too, that when, when you start getting into the early reggae years, that's when they start really getting into um, making albums rather than singles. And I personally loved albums as an art form. There were so many amazing ska and rock steady tracks that were only, you know, that were only singles. So, and plus my wife has like the world's biggest 45 collection from her childhood and she kept them pristine. And I went to eBay and bought like covers for all of them and made like a long, like a big, book of everything and we have i don't know maybe once a month or once every a uh, couple weeks we'll have a 45 dance party nice you know just just put out some appetizers and and just dance around the house to all of the uh all the 45 so I, I guess I'm going to disagree with you a little bit on that. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, did you guys, have you guys seen Lovers Rock? Have you seen that? You definitely will love it. Because I really, I love the romantic stuff. I really do. I, I, I'm just, I'm just, and I don't know. Everybody says, that Leslie Kong was not a producer. He was just a businessman. But some of those things that he produced, I mean, so many of them, the tunes that I love, I look at the production credit and it just always seems to be Leslie Kong. So, you know, all that, I guess that was Rocksteady and he was one of the main guys on that. But I mean, tell me some of your, just to, you know, get me, uh, educated. Who? What? What are your favorite Scott tracks? Are you big Scatolites fans? Do you like the sort of seventies and eighties revival where they played ska at these breakneck speeds? Those British two tone bands. Two tone is probably my favorite era, but um, and Scatolites, of course. I think Scatolites are sort of just the unsurpassed kings of ska, whether it's their own instrumental tracks or the tracks that they played on. Oh man, Guns of Navarone. Like, you know, I mean, I feel sort of stupid on a ska show saying Guns of Navarone. It's like, it's, it's like saying, like I said, don't stop believing. Or something like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's almost insulting the ska fans to say, oh, I love that. And I love Simmer Down and, and, you know, I love all the Scatolite stuff, but 
um, you know, I should be more well-versed in the more obscure Scatolite stuff. Ghost Town's my favorite Scatolites track, I think, if I had to choose one. I'm writing this down. Yeah, but you know, what's interesting about the two-tone stuff in England is that um, we were talking before about punky reggae party and how in England, the punk rockers were really getting into reggae. That kind of sets up, sets the stage for the ska revival that happened in England because you have all these punk rockers that are into reggae and then you have some of the punk rockers and immigrants and stuff that are like digging up ska because at that point ska is kind of dead, but then they're mixing it with the punk at the time. So that's that punky reggae party kind of predates the ska revival by a year or two. And it's a fun tune to play as an instrumental. It's got a great, great groove and it's got a fantastic like melody to it as well. You know, you can actually play that as a melody. And if someone knows it, they would just, oh, that's great. That's a great idea. Those of us who grew up playing saxophone, not not me, but we, Adam and I have lots of friends that play sax because we're, you know, Scott oh. musicians. You're you're kind of an icon. So oh, that's nice. We asked some of our, our saxophone ska playing friends some questions that they would want to ask you. Oh, that's really nice. Thank you. Yeah, Mike Park of Asian Man Records and the band Skank and Pickle leads off with what kind of reed do you play on? Well, it's I think the answer to that is more of a reed slash mouthpiece combination. I play a really a, a Dukov D, but it's a 14 D. I had to have it opened up, opened up, opened up so wide. Um, so that I can really get out my altissimo, you know, the real high notes, and they'll have some uh, weight to them. So uh, the mouthpiece sort of dictates my reed choice, which um, is a lavaz medium soft. But when my before I had my mouthpiece really opened up super, super wide, um, I used to play medium hards and, and hards on a, so if, if the saxophone player is playing like, you know, an auto link, um, eight or something like that, then I would say Lavaz, uh, medium hards or hards. But when you, over the years, I've, I've realized that I wanted to get more breath out of the horn and, and, and like have it be louder and especially in the upper registers. So I have a super open mouthpiece, Dukov, and um, play a fairly soft reed, a Lavaz medium soft. But I would never recommend that reed to anybody who's playing a normal mouthpiece. But I would recommend to people to try, if they're having trouble with their altissimo, you know, the really high notes, then I would recommend just keep opening up your mouthpiece or get one that you can experiment. You get a mouthpiece guy to really experiment with and try opening up until you just can't get a sound out of it. I remember once when I was playing with Peter Gabriel, I had this really open mouthpiece and backstage was Andy McKay from Roxy Music. And he went to play my horn and literally couldn't get a sound out of it because it was so, you know, the, the, the distance from the reed to the end of the tip of the mouthpiece 
is, you know, a mile and a half. So he, he was like, whoa, what are you doing with this? But I guess everybody's different, you know, your structure of your throat and the structure of your mouth and all that stuff and what you want out of a... Now, if guys are strictly into ska, I, I'm not sure what they're after. You know, are they after... Um, a lot of growl and gravel in their tone and a real loud sound, or are they into that more Tommy McCook? You know, he was a jazzer, right? Yeah. So I'm surprised at how much bebop is on. I, I wouldn't, I don't know about you guys. I, I, I hear a lot more bop in Tommy McCook's playing than Don Drummond's. Don Drummond reminds me of Fred Wesley in that he just is, or Lester Young on, on the tenor, like just playing what he hears in his head. Not a lot of bebop riffs, but strong, strong, strong ideas. And my Jamaican friends that have actually seen him that are, you know, of my age, that have actually seen Don Drummond, are, are you guys familiar with the fact that he used to play always in all-star, Converse all-star high tops without the strings? And he would tap his feet and the flaps of the all-stars would keep time to the music. Like that was like everybody who's seen him just says the same thing, which is like you could picture him. Because his sound is so strong, right? And then just picture this Converse All-Star and he's tapping his foot so like hard that the flap of the All-Stars is keeping time with the music. <laughs> <laughs> and like hitting the toe and coming back on every beat. Which really, to me, describes his whole sound. <laughs> Leonor from Five Iron Frenzy wants to know, do you have a certain saxophone that is nostalgic to you, even though it doesn't have the best sound? I only have one horn. Oh, wow. I only have, I play a Yamaha 62. I had, when the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson was, uh, you know, was taken off the air when Johnny quit, um, the lead alto player on it sold his tenor and I bought it. And it was a gorgeous horn. It was a little bit more of a jazz horn. And then I was in Miami doing a gig. Somebody stole it out of the back of my trunk. And that's a boutique horn that, you know, it's like an old 59 Les Paul or something. You're going to pay like 20 grand for one of those horns. So I said to myself, you know, I'll get whatever I can, but I'm not going to try to get a prime Selmer Mark VI from the early 60s. It, it, it's, it was just, it was just, I just didn't feel like spending 20 grand on a horn. So, you know, that you're going to gigs and it's a working horn and you're practicing on it every day and, and all that. So I just went to every music store I could, every saxophone store I could. And I really find that the Yamaha 62 for playing rock and roll is really a superior horn. It's brighter, pitches a little better than the old Mark 6s. 
And um, the Altissimo really speaks a lot more uh, on it. I can get higher and higher with a lot more um, intensity to it on my 62. So I'm kind of sold. They also had their sort of Yamaha copy. And I was, um, when I was playing with Tina, um, her, you know, they bought me a backup horn just in case to just keep on stage in case my reed went down or whatever. And I bought a, a new Selmer and man, when I got off the road, I wound up selling it. I prefer my Yamaha. And I also played a lot of the Yamaha really expensive horns, like their customs, and thought they were trying to copy the Mark VI. And I just went, you know what? It's, it's, it's a, the horn is only like two and a half, $2,500 or something. And I really like it a lot. I went around with a microphone and a, and a recorder and, and figured out what sound I liked. When I used to not like my horns on recordings, it was when I was playing these old Mark Sixes, and under certain microphones and in certain rooms, it would come across a little tubby for rock and roll. I kind of feel like for in any sort of music that isn't jazz, um, that I can make my sound darker if I want on my horn and setup but I can't make it brighter on the, on a horn that just doesn't have it. I kind of want to just throw something out. When you brought up um, playing with Tina, I just, I wanted to back up a little bit and just talk about your live setup. Cause I was watching some videos of you performing live with her and you kind of had a workstation around you. And I was wondering if you could run us through what you all had set up there. That was a big setup. You're right. Yeah. On the last tour that I did with her, um, which was in 96 and 97, and then played with her again in 99 on a, um, a Divas show uh, on VH1. I had a big, and I used to have to keep the whole thing on stage in case it went south. And then they had another one just like it behind. So if something went down, they would just take the two feeds out and plug them into their you know, other thing. I'm not the best tech guy in the world, but when it came to that setup, I really had to learn it because she needed things very quickly. She did things very quickly. She moved very quickly. And so trying to say, hmm, can you make that sound a little less like this and a little more like that? And you really had to do it right away. So I believe I had a I can't even remember what the numbers were on these things, but I had a digital rack mounted Yamaha mixer that was, like I said, it was like totally digital. So everything worked by foot pedal to change. I would change it by pressing the foot pedal and then my mixer would change everything. And I had a Korg as my main keyboard, 88 note keyboard. And then I had a Roland on top of it because I liked the sounds on it. Um, and then I had a drum cat. I don't know if you know what those are. Those are the um, electronic drums that's just sort of 
they look like the octopads, but they're they're a little deeper. They they go a little deeper as to you know if you want to do a, a drum sound that's maybe composed of three or four different sounds. So the drum cat was a cool thing, and then that controlled. I just had like a welder, um, in my you know that lived near near me. I went to a welding shop and told them what I wanted as far as all the big um, drum pads, but I had all these big like electric pads set up above the keyboard and welded in places. And then on the other side, they had their, I had like a bunch of them on one side when I was gonna play my electronic percussion and then had a few on the other side over the keyboard. And that was just a totally custom welded thing that they, that just some local guys put together for me. And then um, I believe for the 96 uh, Amsterdam concert, they just painted everything gold because she, um, she sang a song for the movie Golden Eye, the James Bond thing. So everything was kind of gold and I wore gold lame and all, all that stuff. So it was, it was very uh, stylized, but I think that's about it. You know, I had a few modules. I had a, I had a couple of Akai um, samplers that were, you know, they were the best you could get at that time. And um and I, I got into the guts of a few of these synths and samplers so that I could take things off of records. And then if something was like above my head, I would hire a guy to come in, a friend of mine to come in and, and really get me, you know, really get me super tight. But it was, it was, it was a very, very, it, it was as complex as it seemed to make it, um, to make it simple to use, you know? Everything was super complex to set up. And that's why I always felt so bad when Tina would say, can you make it more like this? And I'd say, can you give me uh, 20 minutes? And she'd just say like, no, we're gonna keep going. And then I'd say, okay, I'll have it for you tomorrow morning. Don't worry about it. I, I know what you mean and I'll try to give it to you tomorrow morning. And, 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 and then I'd have to stay late because once you change the sound, you'd have to change every single thing. And it, it was tough. And the, and the times when I was with Ringo, you know, with the all-star band, again, it, it, it's hard to be that utility guy, if you know what I mean. The, the person who plays, like in other words, you can't be playing saxophone on every song and you can't keep playing. So you're gonna stand there and look like a jerk and everybody else, like if they say, oh, there's a harmonica part, a blues harp part. So you go, okay, I know who's gonna to have to learn how to play the harmonica now. <laughs> <laughs> because you can't give it to the bass player, he's busy, you can't give it to the drummer. I'm the only one standing around, you know, and with nothing to do. So if, if you hear that there's an instrument that you don't know how to play and you hear it on the record, then you go, okay, I'm gonna to have to learn how to play the accordion. <laughs> Did you ever actually have to learn how to play the accordion? <laughs> no, that was just a, <laughs> I, I heard somebody say that, that it was the same with Pat Metheny. He was a, a friend of mine who was a singer and he used to, 
he used to have, uh, he was sort of a multi-instrumentalist utility guy too. And, and Pat was always sending him like crazy stuff that he had to play. So I didn't really have it that bad. I just have to learn how to get new drum sounds and electronic sounds and lift things off the record or go back to the original producer and say, can you send me that, you know, bum, 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 bum. you know, can you send me that little synth sound so I can put it on something or, you know, on the, if you ever heard that tune, Golden Eye, that um, Tina sang, I think you too wrote it. It was the theme for, you know, the, the, the James yeah, Bond. Golden Eye. And, and they have these enormous multi-synth sounds. And, you know, there was one guy that was sort of in the synth chair that got fired because he was really like more of a keyboard player. So he liked to play B3 and he liked, he'd have one or two synths and every time another sound would come by that he had to play, he'd send out for like two more synths. So he had like seven or eight synthesizers like all around him, like that were like over his head. There were, it was just ridiculous. They were all around him. It made, it made um, Keith Emerson just like look like uh, he was playing a, a you know a, um, a a melodica or something just standing yeah, yeah. there. <laughs> I hope that answered the question. It's been quite a while since I've since I've had like a big big setup like that. Although I have to say now, it, you know, I do a one man show and I go around and I, you know, when we were talking about the, you know, the gigs that I did in, in, um, in uh, Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's just a different thing. I have a laptop and one foot pedal again, because I like that. And I just, I have theater software and it'll play my tracks and then it'll go into a loop so I can play a solo and then I can step on the, tiny little foot pedal again to get me out of the loop so the song can continue and it also triggers my video as well so that's the that's the way you can do it now and it's actually a lot easier than it was in the old days in the old days you would just to put in the name of a patch like a synth patch a sound it took like a half hour because <laughs> you'd have to go like A, capital A, small A, B, capital B, small B. And it's like the patch started with T. And just to put that one T in there, like it just took 20 minutes. Yeah, my first keyboard was a was a Korg M1. And I remember trying to use the the internal sequencer on it. <laughs> that's a that's a fool's errand isn't it yeah yeah it's like trying to build a ship in a bottle yes like. exactly i remember having instead of going with it a little easier you know when they first started coming out with music recording software i had a roland sampler that was like it was like so amazing. It maybe had like eight megabytes total that you could put into it, and, but it it hooked up to like a little monitor. 
So you would actually have, you know, you'd be able to do it like you were at a computer. But my first sequencer was a Roland standalone sequencer. And you're right, just trying to get one line in it was an afternoon's affair. So now it's just super easy. Now it's just ridiculous. It, they, they, hit the, they hit that space where you don't have to keep upgrading every six months, right? Absolutely. Yeah, everything is, everything is so powerful now. So I just, when I do my thing and I'm triggering like loops on video and I'm triggering loops so I can run around and I'm triggering loops so I can go play my wind synth and, and it's just on the Mac, it's just, wow. I can't, what is it called? Q, Q Lab is the software I use for it. And boy, oh boy. That's really changed my life. You, so you just said you have one of those Winston? Yes, I, I, I'm, you know, and it, and they don't make it anymore. And I love this thing so much. If you, if you, if you see any stuff, because I can play like Jimi Hendrix solos on it, or I could play like you know like heavy guitars, or I could play a Stevie Wonder harmonica solo on it, or a Toots Thielman harmonica solo. I just I love this little thing, but it's a, w, a, a Yamaha WX5 and a Yamaha VL70, and they just stopped making them. Can you explain what it looks like for the, for the listeners? It looks like, well, it's silver and black, and it's about the size of a clarinet or a soprano saxophone. And so you, well, if you search, if you search YouTube, you'll find me playing like guitar stuff on it. And it it looks, you play it like you would play a clarinet. It's straight and it's maybe two and a half feet long. And it works you know, by plugging in and I have a, like I have a, a, a MIDI wireless MIDI setup so I can run around a little bit and have fun with people and, 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 and play these different sounds. So I, I love it, but if anything ever goes wrong with it, I'm totally screwed. <laughs> they just don't make them anymore. Yeah. They, they, like they don't make them anymore. And this wonderful, the VL70 is this half rack space modeling synthesizer that was just made for this Yamaha Winsynth. And if that goes south, they don't make it anymore either. So I'll have to, you know, spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars. There's one guy in the country that works on these things. His, his um, It's called Patchman Music. And he knows how to fix them if he can get the parts. He's constantly buying people's ones that, you know, don't work anymore just for parts. And you've got to send it to him and it's going to take a month or a month and a half to get it back. And so it's, I'm, I'm really flirting with disaster every night that I go (laughs) and play this thing. (laughs) The trumpet player in my band had, had one that he'd gotten from his, his dad's Paul Nagel, who's a jazz pianist. He plays with like Boz Skaggs and he got, um, he got this thing where it's like, it has like three typewriter keys on the top. So in the place of the trumpet keys 
And then it had like a cylinder on the side that you could turn to, to change the, the octave that you were in. And it would, it would, uh, gliss up and down between those. So you could do like dive bombs on it. Yeah. That now it sounds like that that was pretty early on. So it might even be an original Steiner phone or it may be one of the, now the one that people play, you'll always hear people say, oh, oh, you play Iwi. That's the Akai version. And that's what he has because they make an Iwi, which is electronic wind instrument, but they also make an EV, which is an electronic valve instrument. So that started out as a Steiner phone because he was a trumpet player. And this guy, Matt, that works for Patchman Music, he, they still make it. And they've made different versions and different versions. And it's the popular one. But you know elevator buttons that don't move? They just light up when you touch them? Yeah. That's what it has. And I don't know, like Michael Brecker, that was the one he used. He said he took to it. Tom Scott, that's the one he uses. All these great players use it. I bought one and I was like, oh my God, these are those heat sensitive elevator buttons. So if you touch it or even get close, you're, you're, you're dead. You're dead. You're playing really, really wrong notes. And I guess... It must be because these guys, when they played, they tended to take their hands off the keys entirely. But the Yamaha one actually has, it, it's pretty much made of plastic, but it's, it has these plastic keys that are very saxophonistic. So you're taking a little key and you're pressing it down to a little connection, right? Yeah. That, and, and like you said, it has like on your right thumb, it has that dive bomber effect. Um, and on your left thumb, instead of having one octave key, you have like one, two, three, four, five octave keys. So you got to get used to that. If you want to play really low, you got to do something that you've never done on the saxophone before. And, and that's to get used to these things. And of course, you really have to be very tender with everything you do on it because it's not meant, you know, I go from my, like I said, this really big setup on saxophone to like being very, very, very careful, both on how much wind I send through it and how like, so it's, it's like I just switched to violin or something. Yeah. But the fingerings are still the same. Yeah. And I love it. <laughs> I love it. I just, I, it's so cute. It's so much fun. And people get such a big kick out of it because everyone goes, what the heck was that? <laughs> Yeah. Because it really does sound good. Like, especially its heavy guitars are awesome. We'll be right back after this. Tim, I want to, so your early career, your pre-Tina Turner career, you, you played with some interesting people. Um, the Peter Gabriel one, that, that really fascinates me because you played on like his first couple of albums, right? Yes. That's a period of Peter Gabriel that, less people know because it was a little bit more avant-garde at that point, right? Yes. Now, I did some remakes. I didn't play on Peter Gabriel 1, but I played on, and but then we did go back and do other stuff where he put saxophone on some of that stuff. So 
then I played on Peter Gabriel too, Scratch. They call it Scratch, right? Where he's scratching, the one that um, Robert Fripp produced. And I just, you know, I mean, I don't know what you want to ask me, but I just got that because I, I, I grew up with his drummer. Oh, you did? Jerry Murata. We were both, we, were, we both came from the same town. We both went to the same school. We were friends and played in bands when we were little kids. So um, both he and his brother, Rick, who are both very celebrated drummers, I, I just happened to, I just happened to grow up with them. Was that one of your first more notable gigs that you got? Well, the first, the first thing I ever did was I was up at New England Conservatory and, and Jerry Murata called me and said, you know, if you want to, you can come to New York. And because uh, I was expressing dissatisfaction with the conservatory lifestyle, I, I didn't really like it very much. And it wasn't the kind of music I wanted to play. So he said, well, why don't you come down and do this thing? You could study with Lenny Tristano, who was my uh, jazz idol. And, and you can live here and there's, I got a gig for you. So his name was Jim Dawson. He was a not very successful, but he had a following, uh, especially around here. Um, he was sort of a James Taylor-ish kind of guy, finger-picking acoustic guitar, and he's really quite good. I, I enjoyed it. And then we were playing at a club, and the opening act was a little kid named Billy Crystal. And he just said, who's the piano player here? You want to play with me and do some stuff with me? And I said, right here, present. <laughs> <laughs> and I had known him from stuff that he had done on the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which I never missed and never failed to tape. And, you know, all those guys, right? Belushi and Christopher Guest, all those really great people bill murray they were all this was before saturday night live and that's where all the all those guys the first saturday night live cast came from the national lampoon radio hour and so i had known billy and he i knew he did a muhammad ali impression and did different things with them so he he liked that i already knew him and i played with him for like five years i think as on uh, as a piano player how did that work? What was that like? He would call me up about three quarters after three quarters of the set. And we had some things that we worked out, but I don't think there was anything we ever worked out that we didn't work out on stage. He would just start doing something or I would just start playing something and he would just start riffing on it or he would do something and I would start playing some sort of accompaniment to it. In those days, almost all comics had accompanists. Hmm. Robert Klein was a great example of that, right? Because he played great blues harp and he sang well. So his last, he would, and, and his, his piano player was a good friend of mine also. So it was sort of all in the family. We, we, we all just knew each other. We were all New Yorkers and, and that was fun. But I, I certainly didn't consider that to be hitting the big time because Billy wasn't a star at all. Uh, he was great. It's what, you know, that material that he had was what made him a star. But I played with him until he went on to 
be in that show Soap. Oh yeah, I remember that, yeah. That was that was his first, and then he moved to LA and I wasn't gonna move to LA, so everything was, I, I, never, I never really played with him anymore. So, um, but while I was like, just sort of playing clubs around New York, I got a call from Eric Carmen. You know who that is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the all by myself guy. Yeah. Yeah. He led the raspberries. Um, right. Go all the way and all that stuff. And I, that when, when that happened, I just thought, Oh my God, I'm going out to LA. I'm living in this horrible motel. I'm making not very much money. And, but I just thought, wow, I was just, you know, I had, I had arrived and, um, you know, because he was, we were opening for Hall and Oates, and he was filling, um, he was filling like uh, auditoriums. He wasn't just playing in clubs. Like there was this other guy that I played with that I really, really enjoyed doing. Um, a bunch of the guys, remember the band Orleans Dance with Me, and uh, Still the One. Yeah, I know that song. Yeah, yeah, we were all together playing with a guy named Garland Jeffries. He's kind of like halfway between like a rocker and a reggae guy. So if you've never heard of him, check out um, two songs that are reggae that are really great. One, and he used uh, Winston Brennan on, on these tracks, you know, like he used Jamaican guys. He flew them into New York to do these tracks. And they were so, like, I remember... I remember Steve Gadd being in the other room, the great drummer. And when Winston was playing, there's two songs. One is called Ghost Rider. The other is called I May Not Be Your Kind. And I mean, these, these groups are so deep. Oh, man, they are so, because it's like the original guys. And, and Garland was kind of more like a, of a literary guy. He was, he went to school with Lou Reed and he was a real intellectual, but he had a great voice and he really um, loved reggae and was a scholar of reggae. And so, um, yeah, check out those tracks. You'll love them. Was your time with Carly Simon kind of your first real bigger level gig as a musician? No, I think it was like, I think Eric Carmen was pretty much he didn't have her name and legacy, but he was selling as many tickets okay. as she was. She, when I played with her, which was in 1980, um, the band, I like just couldn't believe I was playing with these, like the heaviest, heaviest New York session guys. Um, you know, it was um, Omar Hakim's first gig. He was 17 years old. You know, he went on to play with Weather Report and just everybody. Um, Mike Maneri, the great vibes player. Um, it, it was like crazy. Um, and so, um, all, you know, just all the, uh, Warren Bernhardt was playing piano. Now these might not be names that are, like familiar to everybody, but to like a New York musician, this was the top of the top. And um, 
And so in a certain way, I just felt so lucky and felt like I had arrived. But Carly Simon, at the time, I'm not sure about now, but she was famous for her stage fright. And so the tour didn't last very long. I mean, she was fantastic in rehearsals, but she had such horrible stage fright that she would ask us before she went on to like step on her, like stamp on her feet as hard as we could or kick her in the ass as hard as we could so that maybe the pain would keep her from, like it would help her. She'd be focusing on the pain and she wouldn't be focusing on her anxiety. So, so what happened was we were, I remember we were in Pittsburgh and we had two shows in an auditorium in the same night. And we did the first show and she came out and she was facing the rear. She wasn't facing the audience and she was walking very unsteadily and backwards, you know, like sort of facing away from the audience. She leaned on a stool and I could see her beginning to retch on, you know, like on stage. She managed to keep, I mean, God bless her. She went on to do that gig in Grand Central Station to prove that she had licked this, you know, stage fright, right? She really, really did a lot of work on it. But at that time, it was something she had, she had, she, it was like a real rock and roll album. So it didn't sell very well. But like Sid McGuinness from, from Letterman's band was in it. And Sid McGuinness was also in Peter's, Gabriel's band too. So I, I knew him. That was like old home week. And she came and she, she, after she did like one song, she said to everybody, um, I'm not feeling so good. Do you think, I think maybe if some of you came up on the stage, it would help me. Well, the entire auditorium <laughs> rushed up on the stage. I barely grabbed my saxophone and got out of the way. They knocked all my synthesizers <laughs> over. Wow. And she finished it. And I went on to play what I could. If there was a saxophone solo, I'd come back out and then go off stage. I couldn't play any of my string parts or synthesizer parts or any of that stuff. So people were there giving her back rubs, massaging her calves while she was singing. And so when that happened, we all looked at each other and said, okay, see you back home. And she never did the second show. The band was gone. I don't even think it was more than two weeks. I could be wrong about that, but I don't think it was more than two weeks. I read that there was one show where you wore like a, a leather string, uh, you know, G-string type outfit. And then she led you on stage like a dog. And that was part of her. They really put me in the band because I was like a crazy man. You know what I mean? I was like somebody that loved to dance around and loved to jump around and really was just a ham bone. So they were like, oh, he plays keyboards. He plays saxophone. We'll fill that chair. And they wanted, she said to me, I want you to be as outrageous as you possibly can be. Because if I'm laughing, I won't be scared. 
So I would play in like, well, the first thing I did, there was like a, I, I was living out in LA and, and, and there was, there were all these um, costume shops. And so you could go and buy everything. And I bought this huge, like sequins fish head. <laughs> and I, I wore it and, and it only came to above the mouth. So it was perfect. I could still play. And I wore like a green spangled, like leotard and nothing else. And I would just surprise her. Another time I came out in a diaper and a, um, and a bo baby bonnet. <laughs> and she really liked this, but I don't think the audience really got the joke. So when I came out in the leather G-string and the dog collar and the leash, and she was looking at me and I said, come here, come here, come here, pull me out, pull me out. So I was playing like this crazy jazz stuff, like just like blowing crazy Captain Beefheart type stuff. And she's pulling me out on stage on this uh, with, and my ass is hanging out. And <laughs> I think this was, you know, I've always noticed that Boston is fairly conservative. If you try to go like, even when I'd wear weird stuff with Peter or something like that, or do something, Boston was tough. They were really tough. So when, when you got like into the middle of the country, they, you know, but these people were sort of too hip for themselves. Right. So, so, we were playing in Boston and the manager called me and said, the reviews from Boston are in, bring your pants. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that, but I never really got a chance. I, I, I actually think I might've tried the diaper down in Pittsburgh, but it didn't help. I read about this project that you did on probably around the same time or just after that. Uh, called the Ken Dolls. Uh, I would love to hear about that. I actually, I must have missed that the last time I uh, interviewed you because I don't remember hearing about that project before. Well, there, it's, it's my tombstone. I mean, it's my tombstone. I, as far as I know, was the only band to be banned from CBGBs because it was too blue. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I went to go pick up my money and, you know, Hilly Crystal, the owner, he said, man, it's just, uh, this is go really going too far. And, you know, Billy Crystal came up to me one time and said, one time there was, an, uh, if you know a, a guitar player named Kane Roberts, he's a friend of mine. He's Alice Cooper's guitar player for a while in the eighties. And we, we were good friends. And um, what's my point here? Oh yeah, that's right. We were we we used to just play crazy gigs, really really hard, really heavy stuff. And so we had a band for a while. It was it was called Bone Slaughter, but for a while it was called the Gun Club. And and so Billy Crystal, I told him that I was in a band called the Gun Club, but there was a punk band named the gun club. Right. Yeah. And they were playing CBs and Billy went down to see me. He was in New York and he said, Oh, Timmy's playing at CBGB's. So he goes down and he says to me, 
I went down expecting to see you play some good music. And it was this band and they were throwing live bait into the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like anything goes. I don't really, I mean, didn't, didn't Gigi um, Allen like play there where he would like poop on stage and, 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 and play naked. And, but for some reason, Hilly just thought, you know, cause I made films that, that were in the back of us. And so I made like fake porno movies. They weren't, they weren't hardcore by any means, but I think I really, I did them in like low res black and white. And I just shined a really, really way too bright light on everybody. So when anybody came into frame, there was a little bit of nudity in it, but not much. It wasn't like anything crazy. And whenever anybody came into to frame, they would squint. And it had this really porno look to it. You know, horrible shadows in the back and a really lo-fi look to it. And I think it made everybody think that it was, you know, real porn. <laughs> so what kind of music are you playing? in this band while this is while this video is playing we had no guitars but we did have a guy who played organ and clavinet and the clavinet was really sounded like a you know we had it run through a distortion pedal so it would really fix a lot of those things so we were i was playing piano and saxophone another guy played fender Rhodes, and another guy played organ and fuzz tone clavinet to give it a little bit of crunch and we i for most of the show, I usually just wore like, I don't know, shorts and a tank top or something. You know, I would just, I was, when when you look at me, right, with the old pictures of Peter, I was 135 pounds and I'm six feet tall. So, and I had a bit of a drug problem. So I got into bodybuilding to try to like, take my mind off the cravings, you know? And I got in with a bit a bunch of muscle heads. So I started to like respond to this bodybuilding and 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 grow and get some muscles. I was like, wow, no, there really aren't any people like that. I should do this. You know, and and I was writing a lot of songs. The songs were very sort of sexual in nature, also kind of porny type stuff. It was meant to be just silly and and funny but hilly didn't get the joke and said you know you're scaring my <laughs> my weight staff and then i would and then for encores of which you know we were popular there this was after like talking heads ramones television all that stuff this was in the early 80s when the place you know it was mostly bridge and tunnel people right it wasn't like that the great hangout that it used to be but we were playing Fridays and Saturdays and drawing big crowds um and the Ken dolls would all dress in they had blonde sort of Brady Bunch wigs and they would like one would be in like uh pajamas in a robe and the other was in a tux a baby blue tux and the other would be in a cabana outfit or swimming outfit and and then I would come out in a g-string <laughs> and the, the music but the music was kind of, it was kind of fusion-y a little bit. I was really, are you guys musicians? Okay. So I, what that 
period was for me musically. Like, okay, so if you're going to play a C chord, right? Most of the time, you're going to play a C triad. You'll play a C, an E, and a G, right? Okay, sometimes they'll add the two to make it sound a little bit more folky or whatever. But my chord that I built everything around was C, D, F, and G. So it went all over the place, but they were all sus chords, right? They had the four in them and the two and the five and the one. So you never really, so I thought like you never really landed any place. And I loved that because it wasn't really, and we did like a lot of fusion things where we'd all play the same really fast line together. So maybe that wasn't really CBGB's material either. But I have to say, that is, that that's my tombstone. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like banned from CBGB. <laughs> that is an honor. <laughs> it is an honor. You know, when, when, I, when I got played by, on Saturday Night Live by John Hamm on that little uh, um, thing that they did, uh, you know, uh, based around me, the, I thought to myself, wow, that's a tombstone, but it's still number two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, played, played by John Hamm. Wow, what a, what a, a compliment. What a wonderful thing to have to, to be able to say. But still, just Hilly's thing of like, this is, this is too much. This is too much for me. <laughs> How do you get into Tina Turner's band? And it seems like it's around the same time, right, that you're doing this? Yeah, I did the Ken Dolls for a couple of years um, around the early 80s. And then Ricky Murata, the older of the two Murata brothers, he knew Tina's manager and he knew that he was looking for a saxophone player and a keyboard player. So he said, well, I know a guy that does both. So Roger thought, well, I could save some money and I can get this guy that does both. So with Rick, Rick Murata, like actually he played on, he's the drummer on Peg from Steely Dan. He's the drummer on like a, a lot of the really great Aretha stuff. And like just played with just every single person. He was one of those session guys that would go and do like three, three hour sessions every single day of the week. He, he did so, he'd worked so much that he never had to practice. He just played, he was just had so many <laughs> sessions. So when he said something, everybody believed it. He also, by the way, went on to write the theme song to Everybody Loves Raymond. He became a composer and did a few themes and, and scored a few TV shows and stuff like that. So he was, he's a real, both of those guys are just such amazing talents. So when he said something to Roger, um, I remember Tina, this is really funny because this is just Tina, like totally her personality. I, I pretty much had the gig. They weren't going to look for anybody else. So I never really had to like fight it out with people who might've been stronger in certain areas than I was. But because he said this, Tina was doing really small gigs at this time. It was just before What's Love Got to Do With It became a hit. Oh, okay. So she had a bunch of stuff booked 
like McDonald's conventions. We had a whole list <laughs> of McDonald's conventions and like wow. D-list casinos in Australia and like really small little clubs and like little auditoriums where everybody was like had like, you know, folding chairs or something where they were sitting. And, you know, she was getting big. The thing was going up the charts, but she had all these commitments. So I remember going to this gig and she didn't want me to come on stage. She said, I want you to play the solo to help um, from off stage. So I did it. And afterwards, she said, oh, you probably heard a saxophone. That's a guy we're trying out. He sounded pretty good. Maybe we'll give him a shot. <laughs> 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 so that was like, you know, that was when it started. And that was 1984. Wow. And then, yeah. So then when, when she gets those hits. My world, our world changes immediately. I can't think of a bigger uh, bigger gig for a saxophone player at the time than the one you ended up getting. It's true. I mean, saxophone, everybody had a saxophone player in their band in the 80s, right? That's why now I get so many calls from these 80s synthwave groups to, to come play, you know, sessions for them and play solos because it's 80s. And in the 80s, right, Huey Lewis, Bruce Springsteen, like, you know, Everybody had a saxophone player. You know, even Prince had a, had a saxophone player in his band. Like everybody, you know. So whoever would have thought that the saxophone would have just totally become obsolete. And, I, you know, my, my, my guess is that it was sort of smooth jazz that killed it. You know what I mean? It just became elevator music, saxophones. And these are really great players. You know what I mean? Like, you know, these are really great people, but they're going, okay, I'm a jazz player, but I want to sell some tickets and I want people to buy my album. So they would do those, you know, that soft jazz, which is to me, it's, 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 it's not a day at the beach to listen to that stuff. I really don't like it. I think we're probably feel about the same. Yeah. My dad listens to smooth jazz and, and I can't stand it when he plays it. I don't want to insult people, but because I think that Kenny G is a very good saxophone player. He's a very good saxophone player. He's got chops. He plays all the horns. He plays them all beautifully. But that music will kill you. But they just figured, but they just figured like, well, what can we do? You know what I mean? They're put in a spot. I'm a good player. Why can't I play like rock and roll and kind of be like fusion, but I'll make it like more palatable. And it just became the nineties version of Montavani or something you'd hear in the dentist's office. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know what it is, but it was just so safe. Yeah. So it all just got relegated to the, to that platform. Yeah. And everybody, every town had a smooth jazz station. I wouldn't be upset if it just totally was never done, you know, and it just was never a part of the world. And yet I have a lot of friends who do it and they, you know what? They do smooth jazz cruises to this day. They can still make it happen. 
you know, they can still make a little living. I'm glad you didn't go that way. You know what? Nothing in the world could have made me, <laughs> you know, I mean, I kind of almost a little bit felt if it wasn't for the reggae part of Island Head, I probably would have said no, because it was that, you know, they were just, the fact that it was a like, you know, really, really made by guys who loved reggae. And so that jazz aspect of it, um, I think works. It, it has that jazz vibe, but the reggae, just the, the melding of it works really well. You know, it was incredible how, I mean, it actually went to like number 50 in the reggae charts. So it was like a pretty successful album. We had a lot of interest and you know who loved it most of all? were the Jamaican people who were going, see, anybody that can take this and do something different with it, we just love that. Do you know what I mean? Because it, it, it affirms the, um, it affirms the depth of the music. It just affirms the greatness of the music that you can take it into a totally different space and it works. I, I thought the album really worked. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and we were we were just sort of getting our live show together before it's just sort of you know fizzled out. You know you can't because then you got to make another record and you got to spend a lot of money and all that stuff. In defense of ska, will return in a moment. As a performer in your Tina Turner years, were you? The, the flamboyant outfits, did that, was that an evolving thing or did you come to the gig already kind of wearing like interesting outfits? That was a war. <laughs> <laughs> because I was always trying to push it. I remember Tina taking me to, sometimes she'd be on my side every once in a while. She actually bought me my first cod piece. And she, I remember she said, oh, you got these muscles. Yeah, let's make that a part of the show. So she took me to like Capizio's to buy me like leotards. But I wasn't really into that. I wanted to be a little more, you know, with the, I'd go to whatever the 1980s equivalent of Home Depot was and buy chain and just figure out little things that I could do on my own. And it was all really like no one, no one schooled me on it. But it was it was a fight because I just really felt that when it was my time, when she'd be going off stage, getting a, a costume change, or you know that kind of thing, which is really another way to to, to get a little rest, right? Um, you know, I'd run out and play a solo, and and I didn't want to be, I didn't want to just stand there. And, and I did, and I wanted to be another character. You know what I mean? That was a good foil for her. So I was always pushing it a little bit. And we were a little bit, sometimes we butt heads about it. You know, I mean, it's, it's her stage, right? So, uh, you know, obviously you, you do what she tells you to do, but I'd always be like, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. And she'd say, oh, shut up, okay. <laughs> just to get you off my back, just to get you out of my dressing room. I will say, okay. You know, she, I, I was, I was a pain in the butt. Was the, 
concern for her that she didn't want to be upstaged because she was definitely flamboyant in the 80s as well. No. Absolutely. And, you know, when she had that band on Private Dancer, uh, that Private Dancer tour, I think that she was, you know, she had a fantastic sense of what was appropriate. Because I would come out, right? I would I would be in, like a, you know, a skimpy cutoff t-shirt and chains and the whole thing and the, the 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 stretch jeans and big boots and all that stuff like a more like a heavy metal guy and and that really worked with her chain mail mini skirts and her you know um, um leather outfits and stuff like that it really worked but she also saw herself getting you know like she'd take the wig and, and after a while it would get sort of shorter and shorter and less flamboyant after she felt that she had proved herself. And also she was getting older. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people will trim their hair a little bit and just make it a little less like it's, you know, if you look at, I think it's the cover of like what's love got to do with it or wildest dreams, you know, her hair, her, her wig is short and it's a little bit curly and flamboyant, but not very much. And I think she wanted to, there was one point when I was like, okay, we're going for it here. They're filming this thing and we all were watching our dress rehearsal of it. And for the, and for the, um, for the encores, which were a lot, like four or five encores to do all the time, I just took my shirt off, greased up, and and came out. And all of a sudden, like I had been doing that for years, and all of a sudden, on that uh, Wildest Dreams tour uh, live in Amsterdam, I came out and I had no shirt on. And she went, <laughs> oh no, 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 no! We've gotten we're we're past that. We're not on that anymore. You know, put your shirt on. And I was like, oh man, you know how I've been starving myself to get some abs back? <laughs> she was like, I don't care. You ain't doing that. Nice abs, but no. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome? Sure. So Aaron and I were trying to figure out, are you actually in the movie? No. Okay. Not in the movie at all. Just heavily featured on both of the videos. Um, George um, um, Miller really liked me. And both Terry Britton, who was, who wrote, um, we don't need another hero and Holly Knight, who wrote one of the living. Those were the two Tina tracks on that soundtrack. And they were both big hits. I mean, I guess hero was a bigger hit than one of the living, but one of the living was where I really got to do my thing. And that's what got me the part in the lost boys. Because that's what Joel Schumacher saw and said, oh, I could, yeah, let's, let's get this guy to do it. He didn't even know if I could sing. He didn't know anything. You know, I just happened to be at the studio auditioning for another part. And uh, this guy, Joel Sill, who was a music producer, came. He, I never met him before. And he said, oh, come here. I got somebody I want you to meet. And I just walked into, I just walked into Joel's office and Joel had my, picture behind his desk and I said I don't know what he's going to offer me but I got the feeling I got it <laughs> <laughs> and so what did he end up offering you and that was it I mean the, the the meeting took like five minutes he just went 
oh man, I really like you with Tina. I saw you in concert and I really love that video, One of the Living. And I've got this thing. And of course, the call didn't want to do it. They passed on being in the movie. So he offered it to the call first, really? Absolutely. And the call, you know, my guess is, you know, call's a Christian band. I don't know whether they didn't want to be in the, I mean, I can't imagine not wanting to be in that movie. I mean, you know, but maybe they just figured vampires, eh, a cult, I don't want to get into this, a horror movie, eh. you know, that's the only thing I can think of. And I also have to say that um, some people, I mean, they, the, the call, you know, Michael Bean's ki- kids, you know, they own the song, obviously. They, they, you know, it got passed down to them, but they don't own the footage and they don't. So somebody was doing a, um, a TV thing on me and they tried to get clearance and his son said, oh no, oh no. So I think that they really, not only did they not want to be in the movie, but they really didn't like what I did with their song. At least I can't imagine any other reason why they would say, why his kids would say, oh no, no, no. No, he, he doesn't, you know, and, and, you know, thank God you can, anybody can use a song. You know what I mean? If once it's been recorded by other people, then, then, I mean, you know, anybody can use it, but I hope I'm not telling tales out of school. And if that is too much of, uh, you know, it's the truth. So I don't mind saying it, but I have no reason. They didn't want to talk to me. They didn't want to hear anything about it. It was just like, oh, that guy. No, absolutely not. So Tim, I just wanted to share this with you really quick. Um, so Matt Bettinelli Olpin, he was the original guitar player in Link 80, and he's now a, a horror movie director. He directed uh, Ready or Not, and he's directing the new Scream movie. Oh, wow. Uh, I, text, I texted him earlier that we we're going to be talking to you, and he said about this song, I genuinely think that's one of the greatest uses of music in cinematic history. Wow. Oh boy. Now I I got a big tombstone now, don't I? I'm going to have to get like one of those big mausoleums or something. That is awesome. Thank you so much for telling me that. And thank him. Yeah. So lost boys for me, I saw that in theater uh, with my family. Uh, I was 10 years old. I went and for me and my older brother, it was a huge movie for us. And the, the scene where you're performing in that movie happens really early in the movie. Yes, it does. And for my brother and I, it, you know, because they start talking about the head vampire, that scene to us had set you up as who was going to be the lead vampire. You know, people have told me that quite a few times. And I don't know if you ever saw, I thought it was really good. Vertigo comics did a, did a, um, did a comic, a series on the Lost Boys. Okay. And I was so flattered. They put me on the cover twice and they turned me into not the head vampire, but a vampire killer. Okay. And so my baby oil was blessed. So when vampires would touch me, they would burn. Yeah. Everybody always like, I don't know if you ever saw that. I mean, I thought it was funny. It was, it was, it certainly was, um, I, I really like it. The fact that like comics really like it, like Saturday Night Live liked it and, and, and 
things like that. I, I do a lot of, I, I don't know if you ever heard the, um, the um, what is it called? The, uh, the Bonfire guys on Sirius XM, the, uh, Big J Okerson. They had me play for their Christmas special. I love the fact that comedians really like it. They like the, they like the fact that there's, there's right about it and there's wrong about it. You know what I mean? Like you, I think if I had tried to go down the middle and not been as eccentric as I always try to be, you know what I mean? Like I just try to do like purple and pink tie dyed pants. <laughs> like that's not something, you know what I mean? Like I was like, that's not something you do if you want people to think you're cool. You know what I mean? Like I, 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 and I think it's really funny. People, I think, made a lot of fun of my appearance in the movie. And I'll ask you guys, you're younger than me. Remember when, like, calling somebody gay was like the worst thing you could ever say, right? And it was like this big insult that immediately was like accepted that that was the big put down. Well, thank God, you know, civilization has advanced a little bit. So there would be, I would always get in a gay thing and an insult as, as if they thought it was an insult. And I was always getting like, that guy is really weird. You know what I mean? Like, like if I had done all black leather it just, to me, it just wasn't, it just wasn't Santa Cruz enough. You know, like Santa Cruz is a real hippie slacker town. I mean, it's getting a little gentrified now. Um, but at the time, you know, I, I, I got there early that day and I walked around and I ate a little bit and I talked to people and, and, and I was just like sort of taking the town in and I was so glad, you know, I'd been there before and I was so glad that I went with what I went with because my feeling is the person who wrote the Lost Boys just was either passing through Santa Cruz or his tire went flat in Santa Cruz and just looked at this crazy place, right? <laughs> And yeah. just went, oh, there's a movie here. This vibe, there's a there's a movie here. And and it was the perfect pairing of of you know hippies and and uh and vampire and horror. Yeah. You know what's funny? The purple and the purple and pink never even registered to me. If if you had told me that you were wearing leather pants, yes, because like, because all the the muscles and the chains and the long hair and the grease. And the grease are really the part that, and and as a kid, it didn't even register as grease. It, it, to me, it seemed because it was there's fire. It seemed like it was just like that you were performing, and it was sweat to me. Right. Um, okay. From so so I have a, I have another question from this is from Seth Blankenship who played saxophone in um, Link eighty and uh, Flat Planet. Oh. He says he wants to ask, are you aware that every eighties kid who played saxophone wanted to be you? And for Seth, this is like 100% true. Wow. <laughs> you know what? I spent, you know, we spent about maybe two hours 
shooting my scene. So I went up, walked around town. They said, okay, we're gonna do this. We did it. We did, I think one or two takes of the band and me. We did one or two takes of, of when Michael sees Star and the band was in the background to get that, to get that coverage. And we were back in Corey Haim's room having a party by 11 o'clock. And we didn't even start till it went, um, till it got dark. You couldn't, you couldn't film it till it got dark. And it was summertime. So it took, oh, I didn't even give this thing a second thought. I gave it absolutely no thought at all. I was on, I was on the road with Tina at the, that point. I had to go back, go on tour. And I just put it out of the back of my mind and got zero, I mean zero, feedback on it until the Saturday Night Live thing, which was 2000 and something, 14 or 2010 or whatever it was. And then when people started calling me to come to conventions and can you play the song and that you have no idea how many people sort of your grandkids age are really like the Lost Boys and like, actually like your appearance in that. Because I just used to think that anytime I would see something, you know, you, 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 when, when Google first came out, I tried Googling my name and I just saw like all these put downs. Oh, this gay guy, this guy from the, the Lost Boys, this greasy, you know, and I just thought of it like, uh, like I just used to say, well, they paid me well. I had a good time doing it. I really love that song. There's a part in the performance that I, I really wanted to focus on. You, when you move laterally across the stage during the bridge and you're dragging the mic stand. Yes, that was, they gave me a choreographer, but that was mine. I mean, that's like one of the mic stands with a big heavy bass, right? It was, uh, yeah, it didn't have, it wasn't a tripod. Yeah, so you're dragging this, this heavy piece of metal across that concrete platform. Walking while, backwards. While singing, walking backwards with kind of a smirk on your face. You know what? If you'll notice, this is going out to all the saxophone players. I was playing tenor saxophone with no neck strap. Yeah, yeah. So food from, from the band Kill Lincoln said, how does he play with no neck strap? I once went on a saxophone website and I saw Lost Boys sax guy and somebody said, how is he playing tenor with no neck strap? And a guy responded, he's got no neck. <laughs> <laughs> it's just traps in the head. So <laughs> I, I didn't like the look and I was lip syncing. Yeah. And at the time, I would say, I was, you know, I used to really, really, you know, I'm sick, I'm almost 66 now. So, so I don't train as heavy as I used to. But, and, and there have been times when I've just abandoned working out altogether. You know, you just, it's, you get sick of it and your joints start aching and all that stuff. But at the time, I was really big and strong, probably about 220. And I was so strong that if you'll notice, 
my saxophone up at the neck has a piece of metal, a piece of brass that's actually meant to, that a guy welded on there for me that was like for when marching band people need to hold their music and they put it in, it's called a ligature. And so they, they, they got a piece of brass that was pretty sturdy and they welded it on because I used to pick up the horn and when I'd play high notes, I'd just bend the thing. <laughs> like I, I bent my neck so badly that I had to get another neck. I, would I was so strong that I would just, when I'd play a high note, I, I don't know why, but I would just bend the horn and, I, and I, I would like crush the neck. So they had to get me a new neck and put a, and put a thing on it, you know, like put a, put a piece of metal so that I couldn't bend it. And um, well, I've learned a lot since then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you look incredibly strong in that scene. Like the way that you're handling your saxophone, like it's just and nothing. And it's funny, you know, I, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned that about the going backwards. Because I, I literally, I, wa I certainly wasn't walking backwards. I was skipping backwards. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it certainly wasn't the technique of a moonwalk or anything like that, but, <laughs> but I was skipping backwards. And you know, there was a guy who was Tina's road manager and, and I would come out and play a solo and then I would put the sax on my hip and I would skip backwards to my keyboard setup. And he, he would go, why are you skipping backwards? That looks so stupid. I said, you're the road manager. If Tina doesn't object to it and she thinks it's okay, why are you telling me not to do this move? And so, you know what? I feel really vindicated on that backwards skip. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I want to know with the director instructions director gave you and then what you kept and what you just did on your own. Joel Schumacher, bless his heart. He was like, he gave me zero instruction. He just was going to see what he got because he knew I was used to being on stage. I was on stage every, you know, like I said, he didn't know I could sing. So that was the first time I ever got a chance to sing on a record. You know, like he just went, okay, sure. Go ahead, do it. He even let me write a song for it. And, and it wasn't nearly as good as I still believe. It was really much more of a, you know, somebody tells you to write a song for a movie. So you try to take all the, everything you've read from the script and throw it into the song, you know? And, and so one of the luckiest things for me was that Joel said, no, thanks. <laughs> We're gonna, you're gonna do, I still believe. So, but when he did it, I, I went into the session to record it and a good friend of mine, Richie Zito, we were in Eric Carmen's band together. He produced it. It was all done. He just assumed what my singing range was. And I went in. I knew the song so well because I loved the song before I ever he ever told me to sing it. So when he said, oh, I'd like you to do this song, still believe. I had the album. I knew every word. So I did it in one take, sitting in the control room with a 57 and the speakers, the big speakers that they used to use, blaring. 
and singing into a hundred dollar mic. And then because he thought it was just going to be a scratch vocal. And that's the vocal that's on the recording. And that's the vocal that's on. No fixes, no nothing. So sick. Because I loved that song so much. And there's a, I, I swear to God, if, if, if I ever got to hear the track on the 24 track, you know, isolated, I'm sure you'd hear so much of oh, that. Oh, so track. much bleed from the So from the much because he was blood. I mean, do you like everybody now has like, you know, things that are the size of Genelex with eight, like may, they may have a subwoofer in there, but basically it's eight inch speakers and and then tweeters, right? Do you, do you guys remember? Are you are you old enough to remember the enormous ceiling mounted with chains speakers that were like 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 what you'd see at a live concert of a big star where they'd have a whole group of them. They were wooden and they were three or four feet by three or four feet. And they're blaring these things into the control room. And I'm sitting on a stool just singing along to it. No headphones, no nothing. It took me twice as long to try to figure out where to put saxophone. Those little simple answers to the vocal on the chorus. Just those ba ba ba. It, it took me like a few takes to really get it where I wanted it, where we both wanted it. And so it's, you know, he was so, Joel was so hands off that when he heard it, when he heard, you know, the version of it, he just went, I love it, let's do it. Now I do remember him having a choreographer there. And the only thing she said to me was, the first part of the song, I want you to do it in the middle. Then I want you to go to one side after the first chorus. And then I want you for the bridge to go, go back to center and then go back. So I knew I had to keep singing. And on the other part where she had me go to the side where you see me right next to the, the drums of fire, right? Those were all places where I had sax solos. So I didn't need to drag the mic. So the only thing I could think of is you got to pick up this mic and figure out a way that you can get it over to the right side of the stage. Because she told me I had to. I had to play to that other side. They wanted that other, they wanted the other oil drums. They wanted the other scenery in the background. So that was the only thing. And like I said, I think they did. I, I'd see it as like one take, but I think it was maybe two takes of each thing just to have a backup. Took three hours total. I thought for sure it was like an all day sort of shoot thing, like or all night. It's so rad to hear that it went that it went so quick. One of the living, I mean, all of Tina's videos that I did, they took even I wasn't even in We Don't Need Another Hero very much, but even that just took ever to to get my parts like to get the to get the steady cams to hit me at the right spot and all this other stuff man i don't know how many cameras they had but everything just was like okay let's move on okay let's move on and it was it was it was it meant it's not that it didn't mean a lot to me. I thought this is really great. I'm so glad I got a chance to sing. I'm so glad I got a chance to actually be not somebody's second banana, you know, 
to be the actual banana. And so I was, I was happy about that. But it was almost like um, having a great meal, you know what I mean? Or getting a chance of vacation to go home or something. It was, it was fun. It was happy. But um, I didn't give it a second thought until people started calling me for these conventions. And they would say, do you know that there's like this group of people from different that are like horror movie fans or other just film fans or that, you know, when I go to a convention and I've got my eight by tens and I'm selling stuff and all that, they, I, I, over a weekend, I'll maybe sell like three pictures of me and Tina. The rest, the other hundreds are all the same two or three Lost Boys shots. So Tina was 15 years of my life. It meant, she meant everything to me. You know, supporting her, being on the road, all the good and bad that that has to do with, you know, it's so tough to be on the road. You guys know that it's, it's, and a big long tour, like she'd go out for nine months. And the last tour I did with her, she was out for two years. And that's straight. We got, I think, three or four days off from, for Christmas, and that was it. That's how hard she knew she was setting herself up for life. So she really worked her butt off. And, of course, we had to, too. So the longest tour I've ever done was is two months. Maybe No, I did one four-month that was, I think, maybe had a week off in the middle. And this was all, like, van punk rock touring. And um, how'd you feel about it? It will, after two months, you start to feel crazy. Yeah, you really um, do. And I've talked to, I've talked to a couple of my friends who, who've done longer tours and they, and they said the same thing, a tour that lasts two years. How were you feeling mentally? Well, I, about, about a, how long, a few months in, I had, I, I had um, bought a house. So I just kept putting pictures of this house. Like I was making money to buy my house. So that got me through. I had already been through the drug thing in the seventies. So when I saw everybody down at the bar, cause that's the way people deal with it, right? They go down to the bar, they get really drunk and then they really feel shitty the next day. And that's just what happens. And I always felt in the seventies, at least that the, the music business was a beard for the drug business because they'd give you your pay. It was like a company store. They'd give you your pay. And then they say, Oh, by the way, I've got, I've got pills. I've got Coke. I've got, you know, heroin. I've got, I've got a lot of stuff here. So whatever you feel like I've got it. And when I was a kid, 19 years old, 20 years old, up to 23, maybe I went for it. I just thought, Oh, this is great. This is, this is really great. I'm really living the life. And, and then, you know, when it totally destroyed me, um, then, then I said, then I knew enough from having been down that road that when, when we went to do it and whenever I go on tour, I say, this is war from the start. This is, this whole thing is war. Like this is not for the faint of heart. This is not like you go out and when you go out, 
Every place you go, you make a book of where the nearest gym is. You go out, you keep your workouts together. I bought a kitchen with me so that I could make my special diet so that I wouldn't get fat eating all the stuff that they had in the, in the, um, you know, in the catering. And plus that would get me through everything. And like, I felt like I was, you know, like half warrior, half priest. That, that it was like, if you let yourself slip, like what was the David Bowie movie where he was, where he was a prisoner of war. So there was a movie that he was in where he, where he was in a Japanese prisoner of war camp in World War II. And somebody said something in that movie that really like was exact. I said, that's exactly the way I feel. He said, if you, if you don't shave for one day, you're dead. You know what I mean? If you let it go, even like a tiny little bit, like I'm just the kind of person, I'm an addictive personality. I can really, really get screwed up. And if I, you know, I can't even have a drink. I can't have, you know, I have like a real anxiety uh, condition. So, you know, a lot of those things where I look like I'm really like performing very hard, it's because I'm scared to death and, and going at it hard makes me feel a little better. So, so if I was to like, you know, get drunk once, I probably wouldn't get myself out of it. So I still have to be, you know, I, yeah, I can't, I can't let it go. I'm just not that type of person. And it's, it's not because I feel like it's, you know, morally wrong or anything like that. I'd love to be able to get out of my skull every once in a while. But the point is, if I do it once, I'm dead. And I, I'm sure a lot of people out there can, can relate to that. Some people are, you know, most of the people I know, like, you know, the occasional drink and, uh, you know, the occasional, um, I'm allergic to marijuana, so I can't smoke that. I, I, I literally, I tried it once in 1991 and I went into some sort of wild like dream state where I literally passed out and fell back and I was passed out. My girlfriend was there. She was smacking me thinking that I was going to die. And the la and then I tried it once um, a few years ago for my anxiety. And I thought, oh, maybe that's a way to do it. People talk about it being anti-anxiety. It made me so anxious. I had to go to the hospital. So I'm allergic to marijuana, which is a bummer. I guess because people say that it really calms them down. You know, I, I don't know, but obviously that wouldn't inhaling something or whatever, you know, I, I just think for me, I, I just have to be, I have to toe the line. I have to toe a very, very narrow line or I'm dead. We'll be right back after this. So since you saw the digital short and uh, you started doing conventions you you've become aware of how many fans you have from the from the lost boys you've like fully embraced it too you've just decided that you're you're totally down with it tell me about that process okay 
I have always liked writing songs. And I had a publishing deal with Warner Brothers for a couple of years and got really close to having a couple of, 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 of you know, big artists record my song. Because I was, I was writing for somebody else. But, when, but then I would start to say, well, I want to write what I really feel. Like I'll play saxophone or sing backups or whatever on anybody's stuff. I don't care if I like it, I don't like it. It's a job and it's like, I'm a plumber. I can go out and use a skill that I really spend a lot of time at and have really you know, put a lot of my energy over the years to do. But when it came to writing, I always felt like if I'm not saying exactly what I wanna say, both musically and, and I really love like, like um, sort of 70s kind of James Taylor, but more jazzy, um, a lot of harmony and, but very like quiet, peaceful music. And, and so as I would write these songs and I would like them more and more, the people I gave them to would like them less and less. And I never was able to actually like say to myself, okay, you're this guy, you're kind of big, you got the grease, do something that sounds like, like write something that sounds like I still believe or like the heavier side of Tina Turner and like, don't be a jerk. Don't write these things that you, you know, you dreamt or you feel or that has something to do with your life and, and is, you know, all these lovely, um, all these lovely jazz substitutions that you like and everything. And I was never able to do that. So when I put out my album, I've only put out one album, but it's almost entirely covers because I feel like I'm a journeyman. It's like I'm, I'm doing this. And if I can put a little twist on a Teddy Pendergrass song, that's fantastic. You know what I mean? If I can heavy up an old Al Green song, great. I, I love that. Like, I don't feel bad about it. But the one original song that was just one where I liked it and everybody else seemed to like it too, called Wiggle. And I do it in, the, I do it in, the, in my show and I did it with Ringo Starr and but every other thing is just nobody likes my stuff <laughs> like people I, I i play them these things and they're and they're very pretty but they go like what what are you doing what what are, are you like jewel what what are you, what are you trying to do you know what i mean because it's obvious so once you've made a name for yourself of a certain thing, you can't give people the opposite of that, right? So I feel like I, like you, well, like I said before, I have these skills and I was able to make a record that satisfied me and also was, is something that people really enjoy. Like, you know, there's songs that older people know and if they don't know, highway 61 they'll they'll like it because these songs just play themselves you know what i mean they reach people highway 61 with all its crazy lyrics it reaches people like on the first hearing and if these people are in their 20s and they've never heard it i say go back and listen to the original you're gonna love this or teddy pendergrass go back and listen to the original you're gonna love it and 
And so I picked all, and you know, I'm also like, there's another side to what I do. I have to earn a living. So all those years where the Lost Boys meant nothing to me financially, um, I had to go out and just play local gigs. So I'd put on a suit and do weddings or fundraisers and, you know, lead bands and stuff like that. So I, I played a lot of those kinds of gigs with the guys from um, Conan O'Brien's band, that horn section, um, La Bamba and Mark Pender. And so w- I've been playing with them and I always pick out songs and I'll sing, you know, five or six songs during the set. So I really have a, a repertoire so of, of covers. And I just went, you know what? People really like these when I play them. Why don't I just do these songs like Take Me to the River and Only You and Highway 61. Why don't I just do these? Because I know that people are going to enjoy them. And that's what I do, you know, till COVID. I mean, you're saying you're saying you were going crazy after two months on the road. <laughs> <laughs> I jump in my little Corolla and I go out. I went out for the first time for two months and my wife would come out and visit me and, you know, help me with the merchandise table and, 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 and run interference for me and help me out in so many ways that I, um, that it was fun. So she'd come out, you know, when, whenever we it started getting, you know, like really I was getting homesick and she'd miss me. So I, this little one man show that I do with the, with the laptop, I just love it. I I don't get scared. I don't get anxious. I love it more than anything I've ever done. Um, and I could stay like, I, I could go out for two months and just be like as comfortable and as fun as and I'm driving these big, long five, six, seven hour drives, you know, from one city to another, uh, working three days a week. I try to make it easy on myself. So I just work Wednesdays, Fridays and Saturdays. And, you know, I'm playing dive bars and I'm playing clubs and right. Just like the Blue Lagoon in Santa Cruz. And they're always really full people like go. I have no trouble booking them myself. I just say, oh, this is, this is who I am. And I give them a little video and some pictures. You go, oh yeah, I, my father yeah. likes you. I remember you. <laughs> Why don't you come in and do this? You know? So I kind of feel like some people have said it's the internet, but I kind of feel like nobody, nobody cared about me when I was actually doing it. I'd actually get booed with Tina like Tina once called me into her thing and she said, you know, I got to tell you something. The guys in the audience are booing you because their dates are clapping. And, and so I would get like half, half screams and half boos. And she said, you got to figure out a way to, to get the guys. She said to me, the girls always used to boo me because of my short skirts and, you know, all my flamboyant dancing and all that stuff. The girls, I could look, they always hated me. They were always looking at their boyfriends saying, you know, is this guy getting, uh, uh, you know, is he getting excited looking at her? And, and they would boo her. 
And she figured out ways. So she told me there are ways that you go about it. I don't really know if I was able to disseminate it in the way she did. She really made that work. Like she just, I saw how she did it. She would just talk to the girls all the time, you know? And, and, but now, like, and when I was their parents' age, they didn't care about me. Now that I'm their grandparents' age, and I'm 65 or six, I'm going to be 66 really soon. And I'm, and I'm like the fact that I have like any muscle and can still swivel my hips a little bit and jump around. They just go like, wow. And I get these smiles and like nobody, you know, I'm not threatening to anybody because I'm an old man. So the fact that I can go out in a tank top and the stretch jeans and, 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 you know, and, and not look like, you know, that I actually can do it a little bit. I can still sing, I can still play, I can still run around and I have energy. I, I, get, I get this feeling like, like people really like me, but it never, it didn't, people hated me before. They didn't like me when it was, so like kids like you that saw it when they were kids, if you liked it, the ones that liked it, like I never saw that. That's such a drag. I would just get people insulting me online. So Aaron, Aaron's band was probably the first band that I locally that I really got into, and there and they had a horn section that was all saxophones. Oh wow! And and the lead singer was a saxophone player, and while he was not nearly as hunky or you know as powerful looking as you, he was very charismatic, and like very much had like kind of the same sort of vibe. So there was like a through line there from me enjoying the Lost Boys and enjoying your performance to like the band that I glommed onto as like the ah. first local band that I so, cared about. So you guys got to tell me what's this band with the horns? Is Aaron, do you still have it? Oh, this is just, no, this was a band we had in the nineties that broke up around 96 or seven. What's the name? Um, we were called Flat Planet. Oh, that's right. You told, you see, you mentioned that before. Flat Planet, I love it. Thanks, yeah. I have one other question. We were, we were just mentioning about your solo album, the two, the 2018 album, correct? Yep. So Joey, uh, who played saxophone in the band Voodoo Glow Skulls, wants to know what the meaning is behind the title of the album, Blood on the Reed. Oh, okay. Um, well, it's kind of multi-leveled. The main reason is that when you play in my style, and you practice a lot. Reeds are sharp at the ends. They, and, and if you get one that's especially sharp, it can cut your lip. And if you have to do a gig, and it's a gig where you're playing a lot of high notes and you're doing a lot of screaming, like saxophone screaming, right? And you're playing a lot of altissimo. You gotta really bite to get those altissimo, get those high notes. And if you're really want them to be powerful, you're really putting a lot of energy in it. And so there are just many times when I'll, I'll put down the horn and I'll look at it and I'll see some blood on it. The reed, the reed is the part on the bottom that your, that your lower lip bites into. So you're biting into this soft tissue of your, of your back, of the inside of your lip but it's being pushed, that, that really tender lip skin of your lower lip 
because you really can't develop a callus on, on your lip itself. It just won't do it. So there will be times when you just like, you're really getting into it. You're like really doing a lot of screaming. It's a heavy band. It's really fun. And then you go to get your read the next day to practice and there's blood on it. So that's kind of what I, it was like when you're really, really into it. Like when I'm really into singing and when I'm really into playing, I lose my sense of technique. I just, I just hope that my practicing can carry me through because I just totally bite too hard, blow too hard, sing too hard, and I just lose it. But that's what I love. I love what, you know, because it's like a, it's a bittersweet thing. Oh, you're pissed that you cut your lip, but you're, and now you have to play on the side of your mouth until it heals, which is another really bit of a drag. And I'm sure if there's sax players out there, they know about cutting your lip on the side of the reed. And they know that what you have to do is you have to scrunch your lip so that you're playing on the side of your bottom lip. And that the part that's bleeding or that's that's cut is not going to get used. It's not going to get, you know, and it's all you can do. And besides that, I'm also a big Bob Dylan fan. When I interviewed you for the Good Times newspaper, that was back in 2019. Yes. When you were um, on your tour and you were going to play uh, Blue Lagoon. Yes. And um, I was unable to make that show, unfortunately. I really wanted to go. but um, Oh, bummer. During the interview, you said that that was your first time back in Santa Cruz since you shot The Lost Boys. Absolutely. What was it like to be back in Santa Cruz after decades? You know, I was really lucky in that my wife was with me at the time. So we went to the pier and we saw, I knew that it had burned down, right? That that where that stage had burned down. It was a wooden stage and it was no more. But right in the same spot, is an all metal stage. So what we went, I looked at that and that was really, really fun. We have a couple of really nice pictures of the two of us with the stage in the background. And I was, I loved the gig. I just, I just loved that club. I loved how people were just like taking to me and smiling and dancing and just, laughing and it was just so much fun. I did notice that it had gotten gentrified a little bit. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but I mean, you know, cause we were walking all over the place. So it's kind of like New York city got super, super, super gentrified. So all the homeless people, all the like, you know, the people that sort of are street people, maybe they have a house somewhere, but they're still kind of street people. They're all in New York. They live like underneath the subway, but or on the streets or whatever. But I noticed that there was a fight going on between the gentrification and all these new, you know, hipster um, gourmet restaurants and you know for the young professionals but then there was still a huge like street scene of people who i don't know whether they had houses or they didn't have a home but they were everywhere and it was still like i don't think that santa cruz is going down without a fight yeah yeah totally yeah it is it is an ongoing battle for sure and and there must be 
You know what I mean? Like I, I was really, really surprised because I just thought the people that came out to see my show, they, they, they were, they, they were not the yuppies. So since the Lost Boys was filmed, you've never performed on the bandstand. You know what? I never even thought about it. Like, <laughs> like I remember at the 20th anniversary, someone asked me if I could perform. You know, they were going to run the movie and, and they wanted me to start it out by, by doing what I do now with I Still Believe. At the time, there were just times like... And I was just playing gigs, like in a suit and a tie. And like, I had cut my hair was short. I had a Home Depot haircut. You know, I looked like a, a, a contractor or something, you know? And, and so the, you know, and I, I stopped working out so I'd get thinner. Um, and I just said like, oh, I'm really not ready for this. Like, I can't, I, I can't. You want me to do this in four weeks and I can't put that much muscle on in four weeks and I can't grow my hair out. And I don't want to wear a wig. So, so the only way, so now I keep myself in shape. I keep myself, you know, around 205 to 10, something like that. And, and try to hang on, <laughs> you know, as much as I possibly can. Um, and, and my hair is long. And I keep it in the Lost Boys ponytail. And so if anybody asked me, can you come down tonight and play I Still Believe at this club that we're doing in New York? I'd say, sure. So, so it was only after the conventions because somebody, the first person that ever called me for a convention, which was the Mad Monster Party down in um, Charleston. I think it's Charleston. And, um, and he said... You know, would you be interested in doing this? But he gave me six months. He had called me six months. I said, yeah, I could grow my hair out. I could build up some muscle in six months. I can come and do this for you. And then since then, I just, I go, okay, if we're ever gonna, you know, I wanna, like, I gotta tell you, I, I just, I just, I love playing this show. I just love playing and watching people go, oh my God. He's my grandfather's age and he's still out there wiggling his hips and, and being silly. I, that, I, it, it just makes people smile and I can't get enough of it, you know, that reaction. I know during the uh, pandemic, you've been selling, uh, I still believe masks. Oh, well, yeah, I have timcapello.com, which is only a, a merch Thing where I do masks and CDs and pins and eight by tens and stuff like that. And, um, oh man, you know, COVID has been so good to us. My wife can work from home and I, my stepdaughter told me about cameo.com. Oh yeah. I, I can't even tell you. I'm, that that's what freaks me out when like guys <laughs> like you say when guys like you say like do you know that there's like a group of saxophone players who really think that like you know you're somebody they look up to and and stuff like that i, I just can't picture it at all <laughs> and yet she said you know there's people that are doing these little cameos from their house and i asked them 
if they'd be interested and they went, oh, we love you. Yeah, come on, do it. And I'm, excuse me for being, you know, like a, a, a <laughs> just like a money grubber, but I'm making more dough than when I was going out and playing. <laughs> I would go out and travel like two hours to do some four hour gig and come back with you. I'm, I, yeah, 31 days a month, I've got like, eight or 10 cameos. And I love them because I, I just, I just can't get over the fact that there's people that go, oh yeah, it's, it's, you know, sometimes they say, oh, it's my mother's or my grandmother's birthday. But sometimes they say, oh yeah, my, my husband just turned 26 and, and, and he's a big fan of yours. And I just go like, what? <laughs> for you know for what i call my 12 seconds of fame in that movie you know like i wasn't even in it i remember going to see it with my family and they went geez i blinked and you were gone i, I what are you talking about why'd you bring us here and that's the <laughs> way i felt about it you know like i just like i was i wasn't in it for very long at all and why why am i going to edinburgh and to Manchester and doing a tour of Florida in September and then coming back and in November doing another tour. I, I just can't figure it out. Like why you guys want to talk to me. It's just beyond my comprehension. I'm starting to get the message now, but it's still so crazy. Like, there's we I don't know if you have this expression, but in New York, you New York City, you have the expression you really stepped in shit. That, you know, because before they made people clean up, New York was like a minefield. Right. So that was a that was a colloquialism for getting lucky. So I, I would, you know, like to talk about talk about stepping in shit. This thing will not, go. it's 34 years later, 33 years later, something like that. And I'm talking to you. I can't even believe it that people want to talk to me or they'll come out and see my show or want me to sign something like, like little kids even come little kids, their grown up parents, their grandparents, and they all come together and say, oh, like, yeah, he, my grandfather turned my father onto the Lost Boys and he turned me onto the Lost Boys. And we all, but like, there's that, that the movie won't go away. And then there's the fact that I was like in it for like, I mean, ge a generous thing is maybe a minute of screen time. I, 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 I. I don't understand. I think that that scene just like, especially people our age who saw it when we were like, I think I'm like, Adam saw it at 10. I saw, I'm a couple years older than him. That just scene just seared in our brains. I mean, literally all day long while, while we've been waiting to, to talk to you, I've just been thinking like, it's basically like, like me getting on the microphone with you and being like, so Thor, tell me about how <laughs> like, like you're basically like this, like legendary character from my childhood. So to be able to talk to you one-on-one -on -one or three on three of the three of us together <laughs> is mind blowing because wow. like never, but I've looked at that person up on the screen and been like, Oh, I'm going to have like, I'm going to have a conversation with this person and it's going to be totally normal. Now, let me ask you a question. 
when when you had your band, uh-huh. right? This is Aaron I'm talking to, right? Oh no, yeah, me, yeah. But both of us have bands. Okay. Yeah. So when you had your band and you had saxophones in it, was yeah. that was any part of that like, oh, saxophones are cool because I like the Lost Boys or or we're trying to bring back the saxophone. We like it. Like what? Because the saxophone is a dead instrument, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, it definitely Lost Boys factored in, but it was also because of ska, the, the ska revival. Ah, yeah. That, saxophones. Well, let me ask you a question. When you had a totally saxophone horn section, yeah. what was the breakdown? Alto, tenor, Barry, one of each? It was, well, it was for a large section of it, the lead singer, uh, his his reed was like, he would never change his reed. And so he had a gross <laughs> cracked reed in his saxophone. And so he would just kind of honk, honk away. And then the other two dudes were Seth and Jeff and they um, were like young punk rock dudes with giant mohawks. Oh, wow. And and um, one of them played alto, the other one played tenor. And then I think for a while he played Barry. I liked Jeff. it better when, when he played Barry because it kind of had the, the wide range of sound. Oh yeah. man, having that Barry right in the section, yeah, it just gives it like, I always think of it as that's the Lady Madonna section. Yeah, well, and then and then so in my other band, uh-huh. my friend Jason would play Barry, and he would double, you know, parts that the bass player would be playing. Oh, that's so, so while, cool. While the trumpet and the tenor are playing a, a like a high part, sure. In unison, then you would have the the baritone doubling the bass guitar. Oh, that's so and cool! It, it was really really cool. Um, and then back to Seth and Jeff, though, <laughs> they would do this thing during the set where about what? How many songs in, Aaron? Like three songs in, they would they would take their shirts off. Oh, really? And they, and they were both like young, like buff dudes. Oh, wow. Um, so like, that was very much like a through line to me <laughs> of you in, in Lost Boys with the chains and the, and the, and the big muscles um, and those guys, especially because we grew up in Gilroy, which was really close to, to Sacramento or to Santa, Santa Cruz. Santa yeah. So it didn't feel like Lost Boys you know, it was obviously fictional, but it, it was a real place to us. So, wow. So none of it seemed that fantastic. Like, like punk rockers that look like, that look like the Lost Boys are like, I mean, I look like I'm in the Lost Boys, basically. Like, <laughs> the, the little cartoon, the little cartoon on the screen is, is a drawing of me. And like, you know, I have long hair and I wear all black and, and, and you, and, and you work out too. You guys both work out. I do. I'm actually a, a um, group fitness instructor. No kidding. I'm more of a hiker, backpacker, but I don't, yeah. Very cool. So you guys like have got, you know, you're, you're jacked, right? <laughs> I wish I was more jacked. I mean, like I'm, I'm stoked. I'm stoked on you, you know, you know, being up in your sixties now and like, and like still thinking about it the way that you do. And uh, I mean, I really relate to your whole aspect of, when you think about going to play a show or going out on tour, thinking of it as war. I mean, that was very much my mentality. So you managed to keep it together. You never developed a habit or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, well, I was, we had a, we had a lead singer that, that overdosed on heroin when he was 19 and died. Mm. And so- So you um, saw the, where that would end we up. Saw, we saw the effects of it, but at the same time, I had this kind of weird nihilistic view of, um, you know, just being a punk rocker and thinking like, I'm not going to live to my thirties. Just oh. like, you know, something will happen. I'll, I'll, we'll roll the van or I'll get stabbed uh, or something. 
Yeah. Right. And uh, and so now it's weird to be like 44 years old and like still going, still playing punk rock. Wow. We'll be right back after this. Wow. So you guys, you're still doing it. Oh, wow. That is so cool because if you took the beard away, that's um, that's me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. We all got to so, meet sometime. That would so be my, so cool. My big, my big goal, and I'm just going to put this out into the world so we can try to make it. I'm really upset that you've never played the bandstand again. Like, that just seems like a crime to me. Do you know what? On their 25th anniversary, I wrote to, like, the town, the Chamber of Commerce, said I would love to do it. I would love to be there if you're going to screen the movie. You know, on the day the movie came out, they always screened the movie. And they never got back to me. Nobody ever called me back or wrote me back or anything. Only that one at the 20th anniversary. And that was because it was an outside company that does outdoor movies. And they, they were the ones that contacted me. But you know, and I don't know if you guys, when's the last time you've been to Santa Cruz? Before the pandemic, I'd go down there um, every once in a while, just because I write, I write for the newspaper down there, but I live up in Sacramento. So I would go down there once in a while, yeah. So then you know, my, my wife and I were looking around at all the, all the swag shops, right? All the merchandise shops. And there was not, one t-shirt i mean there were hundreds and hundreds of t-shirts and dozens of stalls that had nothing but t-shirts and pins and not one of them said the lost boys not one of them said welcome to santa carla not one of them said any reference so i think something happened and they don't they're kind of it's kind of like the guy in the call <laughs> doesn't want to be associated. <laughs> well, you know, you know, are you familiar uh, with James Durbin, who was um, he was on American Idol. He, he was um, from he's from Santa Cruz and he's like a metal guy. He's like kind of got famous because he was like one of the few guys that played metal on American Idol. Uh-huh. So he's like a local treasure in Santa Cruz. And um, he does like all kinds of gigs locally. So he has a. Uh, like a rock and roll cover band that he, he gigs locally to kind of make ends meet. Sure. And he calls it lost boys because, you know, in his mind, that's just like sure. the most iconic Santa Cruz thing you could say. Of course. The lost boys. Yeah. I mean, but the town doesn't acknowledge it at all. I mean, I think a big part of it is that, you know, they were actually, they actually were labeled the murder capital for. Oh, I see. And so I think reliving that with the vampires was a bit much for them. I get it. <laughs> now I understand. But they do screen it, I think, yes. once a year. Yes. When was the last time you watched The Lost Boys? Uh, it's been a, been a few years. How about you, Adam? It was last night. Last night. <laughs> <laughs> you Dude, know what? good. I've it's only legit it, good. I've only seen it once in my life. I never like to look at things that I do they embarrass me so i saw it once like i said when it was in the theater but i've never seen a dvd of it tim i've literally watched this movie hundreds of times really yes like it's it was my brother's and mine's like one of our favorite movies and i've i've seen it so many times and like it was weird to have my brother remind me that like when I initially saw it, I totally thought that you were going to be the lead vampire. And that's what they, they set it up at the very beginning of the movie that you're the lead vampire. Yeah. 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 Cause you're like the most intimidating 
guy. I was like, such an afterthought. <laughs> so weird. I think <laughs> I think that Joel, because Joel said, okay, you're in. And then he said, okay, we're going to do this. I'll give you like one day to write a song. You send that to me. No, we don't want that. We want, I still believe I'm sending this over to Richie Zito. He's going to put it together. You're going to do this. It was all done in a week. I was up there. And then I was like, oh God, uh, yeah, I think pink and purple would be fun. I'd like to do a hippie <laughs> kind of thing. And, 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 um, and I think I was up there actually filming it like in two weeks. So it was, it was, an it was just such an afterthought in Joel's mind. He just needed somebody. Could have been me, could have been anybody. You should really go back and watch that movie. Should I? My wife's never actually seen it all the way through. You, you gotta watch it. <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? That would help me at conventions. I watched it last night expecting it to like not hold up. Like I was like, I'll watch it and whatever, just so I can be have it fresh. Like just from like an aesthetic standpoint, the whole movie looks awesome. The vampires look incredible. Their motorcycles are insane. Even after all these years, the makeup yes. looks good. Your your performance is insane. Like it's the crowd looks so degenerate. Oh my playing. god, those people, they were not extras. They were there every night. They were doing that every night. They were headbanging. That stage was used every single night. There were concerts all the time, every time. And so that group of people, huge amount of people. I mean, yeah. they, they told um, the, the uh, director of photography, Michael Chapman, was talking, I, there was a guy throwing people off the stage because they were <laughs> coming up on the stage and I thought it was a security guy. It turned out to be the DP, Michael Chapman. He was like, wow. he was like playing like security. Those people were there all the time and they were all high. They were all and drunk. They were all used to climbing up on stage every night. So it was something that, that's why we didn't need to do any takes. You didn't need to get any excitement. Those people were like nuts. Wow. That is fucking <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarns.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to order my book, In Defense of Ska, you can go to Amazon, request it at your favorite indie bookstore or library, or go to clashbooks.com. And on that note, we'll leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Thank you. <laughs>